Hello, and welcome to Ready, Set, Retire, an audio guide packed with information to help you achieve a successful retirement. I'm your co-host, John McComb, and it's my pleasure to join Lori Pinkowski every two weeks to talk about financial and estate planning, travel, hobbies, and so much more. Whether you are planning for retirement or already living your retirement dreams, Ready, Set, Retire is for you. And Lori, one of the biggest benefits of having a good financial advisor like yourself is your ability to help families with everything, including understanding when to bring in an external partner to help with achieving overall financial success for a family. Now, we talk a lot about retirement planning for business owners and the importance of planning ahead on this program. Uh, Tax planning and retirement planning go hand in hand. Therefore, having a successful retirement plan means you must also consider the tax planning aspect as well, which is why I am looking forward to uh, hearing today's guest as we're going to talk about tax planning for business owners. You're completely right, John. When it comes to tax planning as a business owner, many find it difficult to gauge when to outsource responsibilities or handle them on your own. Chartered professional accountants, CPAs are, of course, financial experts in their own right. You know, I was very thankful to have them around, not just during tax time, but for annual planning for a lot of clients, right? And whether it's um, business owners or whether it's high net worth families or people who own a lot of real estate, we definitely lean on professionals for our clients to help provide that really good advice. And a good CPA firm can help businesses and business owners make sound financial decisions really avoid costly mistakes and save you time at the end of the day. So maybe you're facing a significant structural or operational change to your organization, such as planning to sell your business or close to selling your business. You want to prepare for that, not just months in advance, sometimes years in advance. And consulting a CPA about the tax implications of those decisions is so vital to ensure that you're not paying more tax than you have to, because nobody likes that. That's for sure. So planning for the future of your business assets and family wealth obviously can be complex, more so for some families versus others, but it's really important to ensure that you move forward and are using a CPA that can be very valuable. And so today, to uh, talk more about tax planning strategies for business owners, we're joined by Shane Sheppens. He is the principal of Clearline CPA and the tax department lead. Shane works in tax with a focus on corporate reorganizations, estate planning, and succession planning. He helps businesses and their shareholders minimize income tax and create business structures that are functional for both business and tax purposes. Shane has over 20 years of tax planning experience, completed the in-depth tax courses, and teaches tax courses for the Chartered Professional Accountants of British Columbia. Welcome, Shane, and thanks for being here as well. I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show today about these topics because when I'm sitting across the table from clients, a lot of this comes up in conversation naturally. And to have a professional being able to kind of lend us their insight is great. So we're we're really thankful that you're here today. So welcome. Well, thank you. Happy to be here, Lori and John. This is obviously a big passion of mine, talking about tax and and doing tax planning. As uh, John, you said, I've been doing this for over 20 years. And I spend a lot of my time actually helping other CPAs uh, with their clients' needs as well as our own clients. And then also teaching tax courses, not just for CPA BC, uh, but our own clients and across the country as well. So definitely something I'm interested in for sure and been doing for a long time. 
somebody who loves tax, you know, that's just fantastic. I, I'm just so thankful there's people in the world like Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so we have come to the right person to talk yes. about all of this. Nice to have you, Shane. <laughs> Thanks. And so right off the bat, for business owners who are thinking about retirement, what do they need to know to prepare them for the transition and the sale of their business? Well, the biggest thing what I always say is that you need to talk to your advisors and talk to them in advance. Uh, some of the planning, what we could do, whether it's a tax advisor, an investment advisor, an insurance advisor, needs to be thought out and thought out in advance because some of the tax planning we do can take up to 24 months to implement and implement properly to take advantage of all the tax rules we're out there. Uh, one of the things what I always look at when making a business sellable is just looking at the actual business itself, looking at the financial statements, looking at the, uh, the company. And one thing what we really hone down on is looking at the assets of the company, especially those that are not being used actively in the company and looking at removing those assets from the company. And we use the term purification, uh, but to purify the company of any inactive assets. The other thing we also want to usually look at in advance is usually life insurance policies on the shareholders because those typically get stuck in a company for good reasons. Uh, but when you're looking at transferring the company to a third party, you don't necessarily want to give up the ability to have those life insurance policies move as well. You might want to maintain those uh, for your own financial planning. So that's one of the things we do hone in on a lot of as well and work with the financial and insurance advisors on that. And then the last thing what we really look at is look at the expenditures with the company is, is paying out. And a lot of smaller businesses do use their company as an extension of themselves. And there's a lot of times where there's a lot of personal transactions that are put through what do have a business justification, but at the same time, someone coming in and looking at the company to try to buy it would not give the, uh, the ability or give them the benefit of those. And so we look at trying to have those remove those in the latter years to make the company look a little bit more stronger, look a little more profitable uh, and more accurate of what a new business owner would probably actually project going forward. That makes a lot of sense. And you touched on it a couple of times there that business owners should be talking to their financial advisor or financial planner. And, and this is what we concentrate on so much. And that's why we're happily working with you guys is because, you know, it's important for people to have a team of professionals around them because there's not one professional that can provide advice in every area. And as long as your professionals are talking to each other, that makes a lot of sense. And it's good for you who is possibly trying to sell a business or, or looking at retirement. Yeah. And what I'd think of it is I'm a business owner too. And so I have some of the same things that I get to deal with as what my clients get to deal with. I have one uh, area of expertise, but I don't have the same expertise as my clients. So I bring a certain level of abilities to them, just like all their other advisors do. But at the end of the day, they know their business a lot better than we do. But we're there to assist them in making it more sellable, uh, making it stronger, and hopefully maximizing the sale price that they'll be able to get out of it. Definitely makes sense. So what are some tax efficient ways to draw funds from their corporation? If you have some insight on that, I'm sure many business owners are hoping and praying there's a way. But as we all know, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of ways to do this well. We do it through some ways through insurance, but uh, any ideas from you? Yeah, obviously, it is a little bit difficult to take out funds very tax efficiently from your company. Like you'll have your typical ones, there'll be dividends or salary, uh, where dividends are the distribution of after tax profits from the company, and you pay a lower effective personal tax rate on that to compensate for the fact you've already paid a corporate level of taxation. Then you have your typical salary where you get paid a wage from your company. And then there's some more uh, different approaches. Like you said, there is life insurance as an ability to, and an avenue to take out funds or to 
to uh, invest funds through a different mechanism. There's some more aggressive structural approaches that you can do, and, and I, I'm sure we'll get to talk about some of those in, in a little bit. There's more uh, complex transactions where you could try to have a withdrawal be classified as a capital gain and to take benefits of the lower capital gains rates. And then the last is just honestly looking at the company, and, and though I just suggested not to be putting through legitimate and reasonable expenses, but that is one way to get uh, monies out of your company is if there is a business justification for the company paying for expenses, then that's a good avenue to take out some money on a tax-free basis. So there is a, a few different avenues to take out money, uh, usually tax efficiently. At the very beginning, we talk about how people can wrap up their businesses and, and move on from that. But it strikes me that if you're talking about tax optimization, that you don't want to be thinking about that as you're going out. You'd like to think about that kind of nearer the beginning so that the structure is set up and is in place as you go along. That's correct. Like there's a lot of ways we could organize a business to be more tax efficient. And we're usually a lot of times you look at the shareholdings of the business itself. And we think about, you know, sometimes in advance, sometimes more in the latter years about, you know, how is a company going to pay out its profits, its accumulated profits to the shareholders and how to make that on a more tax efficient manner, especially if you are dealing with someone in those retirement years or getting close to those retirement years. It's more important to be able to try to structure that so they have the longevity of their cash flow. Uh, and be able to live off of that. So that's one thing where we always want to look into is just what are their objectives? How quickly are they going to be exiting? How are they going to be exiting? What their thoughts are on that and trying to structure it accordingly. And so often we hear about estate freezes, and especially during the financial planning process. And this can be for business owners as well as families. I see with a lot of real estate, that's kind of where I see it happen more even. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works and who likely would be a candidate to do that? Yeah, for sure. So when it comes down to a state phrase, the most likely candidate is someone who has an ownership of a high growth asset. So where the asset has appreciated in value by usually a significant amount, and they now want to limit how much of that appreciation is targeted to them. So they want to cap that appreciation. And so you could do it different ways depending on the type of asset. When we're dealing with shares of companies, typically what we'd have them do is we'd have them exchange those common shares with or typically the growth shares. And we would have them exchange those shares for a preferred share, which has a fixed redemption value. And then we'd come along and, and have new common shares be issued to a new person, either a new shareholder, a new company, or a new trust, or something like that. If it's real estate, then it's different ways that you could do it as well to achieve the same uh, abilities to do it. Unfortunately, you know, you can't gift your assets usually on a tax deferred basis between family members or other people. So you really have to watch that. And so that's where the estate freeze or a freeze in general just comes in handy. Now, there's different ways we could do it. And that's one thing that you have to pay attention to. Depending on the way you do it can have other tax complications to it. So it is something what you know you need to look at and think about before acting upon and just making sure you get the right advice. I was just going to say, you know, it strikes me that this isn't something that you want to try on your own, right? This isn't something that you're going to go, oh, hey, I've got that handle. I can deal with that. Because (laughs) it it is massively, or can be, I suppose, massively complicated. And so you need a pro to look at it and help you through that process. We definitely don't suggest doing tax by yourself at home. <laughs> Just like investing, we don't suggest it either. Really? Not in your mom's basement? You don't, no? Okay. Definitely not. Another strategy regarding estate planning for business owners is, of course, the family trust. Explain for us what a family trust is and how it works. 
For sure. So family trust is a tax planning tool that I use very frequently. What it is, is it's an arrangement or a relationship between a, a number of different parties, but allows for the ownership of an assets to be owned on behalf of a group of beneficiaries. Instead of one person having direct ownership, you'd have multiple beneficiaries would have an interest in that asset, but not a right or an obligation to receive something. So there's a specific way you need to set up a family trust. It's a very complicated process and has to be done appropriately to make sure it's effective. One of the things you need is you need to have someone called a settler who sets up a trust on behalf of that group of beneficiaries. And then you have a trustee who's like the decision maker who then manages those assets on behalf of those beneficiaries. And so you kind of need those three parties, the settler, the beneficiaries, and the trustee to create a trust. And then with the hopeful goal that this family trust will then own assets on behalf of this group of beneficiaries for, you know, a, a length of time until such time as they need to distribute those out and put those into the individual hands of those individual beneficiaries. I mean, there's so many different types of trusts out there too, which I'm sure we'll get to. But in terms of the benefits and, you know, maybe the disadvantages of using a family trust, so what do you see there? Yeah, so I normally look at the disadvantages first. And so one of the biggest disadvantages are is that a trust, a family trust only has a lifespan of about 21 years. And so you can create a trust today. And within 21 years, you have to do something, you undertake a transaction, or you have this dire consequence of the trust is deemed to sell over its assets at fair value and pay tax at that time. But just before that 21st anniversary, there's a way to unwind that trust and put that asset back. So you can't keep a trust going forever. It effectively is only good for a generation, then you have to do something about this. One of the other disadvantages is, of course, the cost. Cost of setting up, the cost of maintaining a trust over its lifespan. And then the last thing is probably the complexity. Obviously, if you're dealing with a company, you could have a very simplistic structure. But once you start adding on a trust, it starts to make the structure a little bit more complex. So you really need to make sure you have the right advisors in there. Then the advantages, and then there's a lot of advantages of a trust, and this is where you know I spend a lot of time trying to explain what these advantages are. The biggest one is there's no direct ownership of the assets. So as I said, you have a group of beneficiaries would have an interest in those assets, but they don't have a direct ownership of those. So they're held on behalf of this group of beneficiaries, and the trustee normally has discretion about who gets what, when, and where, if any. And so this adds a lot of protection. And I think of it, and unfortunately I have to talk about those uh, times when things go bad, but I think about a family member who, you know, gets into drugs, gets into bankruptcy, gets into marital difficulties and things like that. If they have direct ownership of these assets, well, that's something where a creditor can, or a spouse or somebody can go and lay claim to. Well, if there's a family trust, they don't have a direct ownership right. So it allows that protection mechanism there. And that's very important for a lot of my business clients where, you know, the parents are getting older, they want to pass off stuff to their children, but there's still a lot of risks out there and still a lot of unknowns. And they're not certain if they want to give that direct ownership out to their children. The other big thing is when it comes to estate planning. So we use this to help reduce taxation upon passing and also succession planning when we're wanting to pass businesses off to the next generation. Say you want to bring your kids into the business, but they're just not old enough and not mature enough to have that ownership today. Uh, the next one is if you have an operating entity, there's something called the lifetime capital gains exemption, which can be multiplied using a family trust. And this is the ability where if you sell the shares of a qualifying company, 
you can get the proceeds of that or a gain of $970,000 tax-free to you. And using a family trust, you can multiply that $970,000 exemption based on the number of beneficiaries you have. So if you have two beneficiaries, you're at $1.9 million all of a sudden. You have four beneficiaries, you're at $3.8 million. So it's a nice ability to be able to utilize this tool when selling a private company, a qualifying private company. The next one is, you know, your typical income splitting, where, you know, you can be able to do some income splitting between spouses and, and children. Now, there is some caveats on that, and it's not as useful as it used to be at one time. And then the last thing is if you have assets being generated in your operating company where you don't need those assets anymore, and you want to take those out in a tax-efficient manner, using a family trust works really good for those. So those are really the five big advantages that I personally see when I use a family trust, and that's where a lot of my clients do see the benefits of them. Are there other kinds of trusts that are common or that are often used? Yeah, there's multiple different types of trusts. I, I, you know, when I think of it, I think of there's probably five or six different ones. Uh, what I, I can think of right off the top of my head. The next, probably I'd say the most common one would be what's otherwise known as an alter ego trust or a joint partner trust. And this is more of a retirement planning tool where you have assets in your hands where you're 65 years or older and want to put them into a trust to supplement your will. And they're more often used for things like uh, probate cost savings, uh, provides a little bit more privacy protection, and then also adds uh, a little bit more protection from a, a will's variation claim, where someone could actually go in and overturn a will after someone passes away if they felt feel like they were unfairly treated in the will. And so a lot of people, when they're above 65, will use these to add in a layer of protection on their estate. The next biggest one is probably what we otherwise refer to as a bear trust. And that's very common where you have someone owning the legal title to an asset on behalf of somebody else. And so we see this a lot in the real estate industry, but it's used very commonly too. Like when you have like say aging parents want to go and add their children on title so that when then they pass away, their uh, principal residence passes through a little bit easier to them upon death. So that's the second most, I'd say, common one that I see. And then the last one is a self-benefit trust where you have an actual trust own assets just on your own behalf. And it, again, it's more used for a protectionary mechanism. So there is lots of different types of trusts. As I said, the family trust is probably the most commonly used in my practice. Then there would be the alter ego or the joint spousal trust. And that's what I hear often too, just in terms of talking to clients and what accountants and lawyers end up coming up with are kind of those main trusts that you're talking about as well. So th those are the questions we get the most. And then we refer them to accountants and lawyers to really dive into the details. So how does somebody go about setting up a trust? Walk us through that process. Well, most importantly, you got to seek tax and legal advice. This is a legal agreement, what gets created on the settlement of a trust. And so you want to make sure that you have all the appropriate things in there and know that uh, at the end of the day that your interests when you're setting up a trust day is not only going to meet your objectives today, but hopefully meet your objectives 20 years from now. Because as I said, these things can have a lifespan of 21 years. The rules of setting up a family trust are very complex, but they also can be very tailored very specifically to your circumstances as well. And so that's where you want to have that advice and that ability to reach out and discuss this with a professional. The other thing to be aware of is that different types of people can have different types of trusts. And what I mean by that is when you're dealing with professionals, so doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, there is certain restrictions that our professional associations and the laws would guide our professional associations have in our. So for example, myself, I cannot have certain types of beneficiaries in my trusts. 
uh, where, you know, you might otherwise be able to because you're not bound to those same professional restrictions that I am. So making sure you're working with a professional understands all the intricacies of this type of stuff. So as I said, the biggest thing is, you know, before you set up a trust, you've got to get the right advice. For exactly. Another kind of topic. So many business owners consider income splitting as a tax reduction kind of strategy. Can you explain how that works and how it could be set up and ways to do it legally, of course? Yeah, so there's obviously different ways you could do income splitting. Uh, so income splitting effectively is where you have one person in a lower tax bracket and then someone being earning income in a higher bracket. For example, say that, you know, you have one person making $200,000 a year off their job, off their business that they own, uh, and their spouse is making, say, $40,000 per year at their job. And so what income splitting is meant to do is try to even that out because you have marginal tax rates where you pay different tax rates based on your income that you generate for the year. So trying to get those marginal tax rates to get a little bit closer. So the higher income person might be paying 54%, the lower income person might be paying 20%. So try to average those out a little bit. Now, this can be done a number of different ways. You know, if you have a, pr a private company, you know, you have a choice on how to do a little bit of income splitting. And it can be done either through wages or dividends. Now, you have to be careful. CRA has rules about this. You can't just go and just do income splitting like you want to. Now, at one time, you used to be able to, but in 2018, they brought in these rules called TOSI, stands for Tax on Split Income, put a lot of restrictions and risks and limits on how much income splitting that we can do. So before, you know, I used to be able to pay dividends to a 21-year-old university student, an unlimited amount, and be able to have the parents go and effectively take that money from their uh, university-age child. Now I can't do that. Well, no, you can still do it, but it's subject to certain limitations. Same thing with your paying salary to, to spouses. You know, it has to be reasonable, has to be justifiable, and things like that. So income splitting isn't dead. It just has to be a little bit more reasonable, a lot more cautious, and more appropriate in the circumstances. Can you explain for us how shareholder loans work? I've heard of this. What precautions do business owners need to keep in mind when uh, thinking about shareholder loans? Yeah, so shareholder loans is effectively that the shareholder is borrowing monies from the company, and that is allowed as long as you meet certain circumstances. And so it works well for short-term loans. So say, for example, I'm going out and I want to go on a vacation and I'm going to go to Disneyland and the flights and everything all add up to $20,000. And I don't have that in my personal checking account, but my company does. So I'm just going to draw upon that from my company on a short-term basis. And as long as I repay that within a two-year period, the government doesn't have an issue with that. Now, there is a there's some interest consequences and things like that if I'm borrowing from my company. Uh, but as long as it's being used for short-term purposes, then it's all right. However, if it is outstanding for more than two years, then I actually have an income inclusion for that amount. You can't have this, this shareholder loan being outstanding for too long. The government will just say, well, look, that's income you otherwise should have taken. So therefore, you have to pay tax on, on your tax returns. Now, there's a lot of exemptions to that two-year rule. And so you have to really look at the situations. And there's exemptions for housing. There's ones for acquiring shares of a company. And there's exemptions for automobiles. And so you have to look at whether you could fall into those exemptions or not, if you're going to go over that two-year basis. But for a short-term standpoint, you know, a shareholder loan can work well. That's great. So also I've heard concerns about a number of other tax changes. You know, what else is really being discussed in the tax community at this time? 
So there's been a lot of changes over the last, I'd say, five years from a tax perspective. Uh, and this started kind of pre-COVID, and, and a lot of it was delayed during COVID. And during COVID, we had a lot of different tax changes due to some of the subsidy programs that come out, you know, the CERB, the Qs, all the different programs that came out. And a lot of stuff got put on hold for the rest of the tax community. But since kind of COVID's been over from a more pressing standpoint, there's been a lot of tax legislation which has been, was put on the back burner, which is now coming to fruition. And overall, it's creating more compliance, more disclosures, and a lot of more complexity. And so some of that, what we're dealing with, we're talking about trusts, is there's new trust reporting rules that will come out next year. So at one time, a trust would only have to file an income tax return with the Canada Revenue Agency if it actually was active during the year. Now, going forward, all trusts are going to have to file a, a disclosure return every single year, regardless whether they're active or not. And so something that you thought might have been dormant is now going to have a filing obligation going forward. But with that, it actually creates a new classification called taxpayers, for lack of a better word, would have to file. And that's the bear trust regime. Before, CRA used to ignore bear trust, where someone had legal title to an asset but didn't really own it beneficially. And an example of that is, again, going back to, you know, when parents age, they sometimes add their kids on to title of their property. Well, that effectively is a bare trust. And all of a sudden, someone who's in that situation now might have to file a trust return to disclose that they actually own something on behalf of somebody else. Then you have something called UHT, the underused housing tax. And that is something which just came in effect this year. The first returns were due April 30th. Now, there was a penalty waiver if you get these things filed by October 31st. But this is where you own certain residential real estate. Certain taxpayers have to do a filing for it. So think of our speculation tax that we have in BC. It's a form that you file to now the federal government to declare ownership of residential property. But there is a lot of exemptions. There's both exemptions of who actually needs to file. And then even if you have to file, there's lots of exemptions of who actually has to pay the tax. And I would say probably only 1% of people would actually are going to file end up having to pay the tax. But the penalties are very significant. The penalties start at $5,000 for individuals and $10,000 for companies. So that's the biggest thing we're probably dealing with right now is trying to make sure that we get those on there. You know, there's new rule changes coming out for next year, what we call the mandatory disclosure rules, where you have to disclose advice on certain transactions. And there's a little bit of an uproar in the tax community right now where you might have to disclose simple transactions. You have some practitioners who believe that me giving advice on an RSP contribution all of a sudden could potentially trigger a reporting obligation. And obviously that's not what CRA wants, but the way the rules can be interpreted right now, it can lead to all these different disclosures for just, I'd say, regular tax advice that we're given. We had something that was announced in the last budget called Employee Ownership Trust, and it's something that I'm personally excited about, though I think under the way the rules have been drafted, it's going to have very limited usage. And this is to encourage employees to kind of buy out the existing shareholders and then grow employee-owned businesses. And it's been something that's been very successful in both the UK and the US. And so I hope that the government of Canada actually makes some good changes to this legislation before it becomes final, And because I think that would be very positive for our country to have more employee-owned companies. And the last one out there is the succession rules they call the C-208 rules. And this provides intergenerational succession planning, what puts you on the same level playing field as if you're to sell your company to a third party and give you that benefit of the lifetime capital gains exemption, what I mentioned previously. So there's been a lot of changes in the, in the tax community, and it is a little bit tough sometimes to keep track of all of it. 
And that's one of the things where I, I said I do spend a lot of my time doing education for other CPAs is trying to make other CPAs aware of all these different rules we're coming out and how to utilize them in their client situations. Yeah, there's always a lot of changes out there. But yeah, the last one you just talked to making it a more level playing field to sell your business to family members as it is to third parties. Financial planner Cindy David that I deal with, she was really going to Ottawa quite a bit there trying to lobby for that change. And I'm glad that they've looked at it and done something about it because again it's sometimes it's easier to keep it in the family as they say it is for sure now that one there does have some nuances for it there were some uh, proposed changes what were announced we're supposed to kick in in january 1st 2024 so we effectively have two different sets of rules we have the rules we know now and we have the 2024 rules and there's pros and cons for using either one of them depending on your situation too uh and so some of our client situations we're looking at say what's more advantageous maybe it's more advantageous to sell now under the rules as we know them versus the proposed rules which do add a little bit more flexibility but at the same time you know we know the rules as they are today versus uh, some potential changes going forward. CRA is definitely keeping you guys on your toes. That's for sure. Yes, <laughs> Changing for things sure. around the last five years. So yes. sometimes people need to lean on you guys even more, you know, with all those changes. So it's a lot to take in as an individual. And that's, again, why having a professional keep up to date with all this stuff is so important because it saves you money at the end of the day. Yes. Shane, if people would like more information about uh, you and your services, how do they contact you? Probably the best way is to call our firm. Our reception number is 604-639-0909. Is probably the easiest way to get to me. If not, my uh, email address is shane.skeppens at clearlinecpa.ca. And that's also our website, so you'd be able to link it there as well. Good stuff. Careful tax planning is critical for business success in an unpredictable economy. And tax planning is also necessary for individuals who face their own challenges in owning, managing, and preserving businesses and wealth in a complex environment. And boy, is it ever complex. (laughs) That's why it's so important to have the support of a team of financial professionals that are communicating with each other on a client's behalf, on your behalf. And again, usually that team involves portfolio manager, financial planner, accountants, lawyers, in varying degrees, depending on one's circumstances and situation. And I always say clients are unique all in their own way. There's not one family that is exactly the same uh, to the next or, you know, what they're looking to accomplish. And so that's why it's important to have open communication, make sure you've got qualified and experienced uh, professionals around you, providing that good insight and advice that you need uh, to move through different stages of life. Now, Shane, before we go, we like to get a quote from our guests that kind of applies to what we have been talking about. So uh, what quotes do you have for us today? Well, I typically uh, like to refer to a quote done by Benjamin Franklin, and it says, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. However, I continue that and said, without appropriate tax planning, you could definitely be certain that you'll pay more taxes on your debt. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Yes, that does hit the nail squarely on the head, no doubt about it. Shane Sheppens, thank you so much for joining us here on Ready, Set, Retire. Really appreciate your time and your insight today. Thank you. Okay. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Yeah. Thanks so much, Shane. I'm sure clients and listeners will take a lot in from uh, our conversation today. And again, should they have any questions, they can always call our office as well or call Shane directly. Thanks so much. And uh, it was nice talking to you as well, John. And we'll catch up again in a couple of weeks right here on Ready, Set, Retire. 
And that's a wrap for this week's edition of Ready, Set, Retire. If you're interested in learning more or have any questions, please don't hesitate to call Lori and her team at Pinkowski Wealth Management, 604-695-LORI, 604-695-5674. For Lori Pinkowski, I'm John McComb. Thanks for listening, and join us again in two weeks for another edition of Ready, Set, Retire. The comments and opinions expressed in this podcast are the result of work done by Lori Pinkowski. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuities Research and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the CIPF and IROC.